1: Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This is the first episode in 2018. Woo! Because we're still sort of on break, uh, there's no news this week, but there will be the news again next week. We love Brittany, Clint, and Sam. And we have two guests. We have Wes Moore, who's going to join us to talk about his work at the Robin Hood Foundation.
2: I believe deeply that the people who are closest to the problems are often the times closest to the solution. and uh, And our job is if we're going to really be poverty fighters. If we're really going to address the structural impediments that poverty have placed on so many families that have been intentionally put in poverty, then our job is to make sure that we're having conversations
1: with members of the community and not about them. We also have Laura powers Wyman, who's going to join us to talk about her work at Code 2040.
0: I walked into uh, the halls of the White House, and it was just a given that our economic systems and institutions should be inclusive of and welcoming of all Americans. And that sort of initial hurdle of justifying the work was just totally gone.
1: Now, before we get started, this is the first podcast of 2018 for us. my only advice is to take one step at a time that so often at the beginning of the year we want to make these big commitments and we should make big commitments we should live in the bigness of of our lives and in the lives of the people that we say we stand with and know that like the only way that we live up to that bigness the only way that we reach it is by taking the first step and you put one foot in front of the other foot in front of the other foot and that's how all of the best work happens That you don't eat the elephant all at once, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. So that's my advice as we go in, is make sure that you put one foot in front of the other. And let's do this, y'all. Here's my conversation with Wes Moore, the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation. Hey, Wes Moore, thanks so much for joining us today on Positive the People. Hey, man, it's my pleasure. It's great to be with you. Now, you're from Baltimore. A lot of people don't know that you're from Baltimore. We both are from Baltimore. What part of the city are you from? Uh, I'm a pr- pr- proud Baltimorean. Uh, so
2: I feel like um, so much of my story is like a lot of people where I spent time in different parts of, uh, of the city and a lot of East Baltimore also as I was coming up and now I actually live uh, in, uh, in, in Guilford now. So, um, so I'm still a, uh, a Baltimore resident and, um, and uh, you know, even though I'm doing the work up here uh, in New York and with the work of Robin Hood, but, uh, but Baltimore is very much running through me and part of me.
1: You know, we'll we'll talk about the Robin Foundation, which I'm, I want to learn about. Uh, before we get there, though, why did you choose to to stay in Baltimore?
2: Well, I think you know, Baltimore is an important part of me, and 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 I always say it's, you know you can't really understand me if you don't understand Baltimore. Uh, and uh, and and I think that as I was thinking about where Baltimore is, um, it's a place that you know that my my I'm, we're comfortable in. We're very much part of the community. We're very much part of uh you know, part of Baltimore. My family is 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 down there, my mom and I have aunts and uncles. Um and, and in many ways I feel like Baltimore's story is still very much being written. And uh, and to have a chance to be a part of uh of a pretty great American story and to be one of the, you know, one of the six hundred thousand authors of a pretty cool story is exciting. So I mean so Baltimore still holds a very important part. In, in my heart about who I am and about, uh, you know, what I think all of us who are Baltimoreans like yourself, about
1: what we hope uh, that, you know, the city can be. Now, most people know you from the book, The Other Westmore, which is just one of your books. You're a decorated war a veteran. You have yeah. uh, been a CEO, an entrepreneur. You're a CEO now, uh, you're a TV personality. How do you decide where to spend your time? Like, how do you make the decision about where you're going to be and where you think you can make the most impact?
2: Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because I feel like for so much of, uh, you know, for a good part of my adult life, I felt like you're chasing that, that place where you're like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. You know what I mean? And, and I felt like the thing that you were chasing was almost a, a, a title. And that's where I kind of got caught up, where you were going into places and spaces where other people thought that's where you should be. And a lot of them were saying it they were doing it, you know what they thought was in your best interest. they were giving the best advice that they knew how to give you from their personal context and so for example, when I was working in finance um you know i i I learned a lot and I grew a lot, and I think I was pretty good at it um It was just never where I was supposed to be it It wasn't a place that that you know made my heart beat a little bit faster and so when I really think about um you know what I want to do and how I'm gonna spend my time. I really want to think about what are the things that make my heart beat a little bit faster. And one of the things I, I want to stay connected to is, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, uh, I'm sure you are familiar with the, um, with, uh, the song Lauryn Hill had in, on the Miseducation Lauryn Hill, but it was a title track. And in the title track, she says this line where she says, and every time I tried to be what someone else thought of me, so caught up I wasn't able to achieve. But deep in my heart, the answer, it wasn't me. So I made up my mind to define my own destiny and that is a level of hell that's you know you know <laughs> that was one of my first crushes man but but i mean like but i mean but that was that was i think her words were just so true right it's like every time we try to be what someone else thought of me so caught up, I wasn't able to achieve. And I think it even goes back to, you know, the idea about how do we choose to spend our time? What roads do we choose to go down? Which things do we choose to do and not to do? And I think the first thing is, is you, you need to be committed and, and, and calm in yourself. Because if that's your guiding light, then generally you're good. If you have other things that are pushing you in one direction or another direction, I can guarantee you your personal safety and happiness and fulfillment and impact might not be at the center of that motivation. And that's where you get yourself in trouble. And you are a Rhodes Scholar. How was that experience? <laughs> that was great, man. You know, and listen, I mean, I was, it was, uh, you know, it was a chance to study overseas and, and I, I, I was studying international relations in a program where I was one of five American students, right? So I'm sitting there studying international relations with Brazilians and Ethiopians and Russians and, and, and Iranians. And it was, I mean, it was amazing. Um, and it was an extraordinary experience and particularly kind of going over there after nine eleven, I mean, my plane took off for Oxford um, on September twenty third, two thousand and one. We were one of the last, tra- we were one of the first transatlantic flights that was allowed after nine eleven, and it was a fascinating time to go over there because I mean, every conversation, you know, immediately when 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 you started speaking and they heard the American accent you know every conversation began with people you know first just apologizing and 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 saying that they were you know that they hoped all was well and so on and so forth but then being an american in the uk at that time was just a, a fascinating experience but what was interesting too was i think even how i got over there really helps to drive uh how i even think about uh the work that i do because i remember when i had a, i was actually interning with, uh, with Mayor Schmote, who's a former mayor of Baltimore City. And I was finishing on my internship and we were sitting in his office and he came up to me and he's like, uh, he's like, have you ever heard of the Rhodes Scholarship? And, and, and as you know, he was a former Rhodes Scholar. And I told him I'd heard about it. Um, and he said, and he started showing me his picture of him uh, up on his wall with him in his, with his Rhodes class. And, uh, and he said, I want you to, to look at this and I want you to consider it. And I went back and I did. And eventually I applied for it and I got it. And I never forgot that because had it not been for him having that conversation with me, I don't know if I ever would have applied for it because I don't think I ever would have even A, known enough about it or B, thought of myself that it could have been me sitting in that seat. And what he did without even realizing it in that conversation was change my understanding of my own place, was change my understanding of my own belonging. and. That gave me a fuel to say that, you know, no matter where I go, no matter where I'm in, I, be, I belong there. And these opportunities were built for me. And I remember uh, the last question I got for the Rhodes Scholarship. It was, uh, they told me, because I'd spent time in South Africa. And they're like, you know, you spend time in South Africa. You are, African, you are African-American. And they're like, how can you accept Cecil Rhodes' money? And because they knew that I knew the history of Cecil Rhodes.
1: They asked you that in the interview?
2: Yeah, that was, that was my final question in my Rhodes interview. It was crazy. And because also, cause I, I, cause I, and, I was, and I was clear, I know the history of Cecil Rhodes. I mean, this was a man who at the time was the wealthiest person in the world. And this was a man who made his money literally on the backs of black bodies. This was a man who made his money having people go into diamond mines and the whole De Beers empire. That was all Cecil Rhodes. And they asked, they said, how can you accept his money? And I told him, I said, well, you know, twofold. I said, one, you know, I think about the fact that uh, that Cecil Rhodes, uh, if he knew that I was sitting in front of you right now, he'd be turning in his grave because I was not the person he intended to get his money. <laughs> and uh, and I think it shows the, uh, you know, the level of, of, of progress that we have because this was when he first put this money to the side, he was not intending Westmore to be sitting in front of you. Um, and the second thing is, is that I know how many people had to fight And had to sacrifice and bleed and die in order for me to be there. And so for me now to have an opportunity to be here and to do something with it, what would I be saying to all of them who had to fight for me to be here if I didn't actually work to not just take advantage of it, but then making sure that other people could take advantage of it too? And uh, and I guess the answer was okay, because I ended up getting a scholarship.
1: You're now the CEO of the Robinhood Foundation. Yes. Are you the first CEO? I'm the first CEO, yes. Who, who, who was leading before? so, so Robinhood Foundation is not new.
2: No, it's not new at all. So Robinhood Robin has actually been around for 30 years. Uh, in fact, this year is going to be the 30-year anniversary of Robinhood. And it was really started back in 1988 um, uh, with really four people, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, Glenn Dubin, Peter Borish, and David Saltzman. David Saltzman was the executive director prior. Um, and really where they were all kind of getting together and said, you know, we thought that you know, and they were all working in the markets as asset managers, etc. And they said, you know, we think this is going to be a really complicated time, and we think we're going to have a real economic downturn that's going to hit us. But they said, but you know who this is really going to hit? People living in poverty, people and who it's already hitting.
1: Why is it called the Robin Hood Foundation?
2: Because the goal is that they want to find ways of taking. Uh, and, uh, getting people who, who really need to be doing more and doing more to support those who are living in poverty and increasing economic mobility and making sure that their resources and their talents go towards people who need the most. Is
1: Robin Hood only New York
2: City? Robin Hood is, uh, is is New York born, New York bred, and New York focused. New York State, New York, uh, actually New York City, New York City, five boroughs. But uh, I think that one thing uh, that uh, you know that I know you know we've we've really embraced, and as we're moving going forward, is understanding the fact that poverty is not a New York issue. Um, and I think one of the unique things that Robin Hood can do is actually serve as an important importer and exporter of good ideas. That if it's working here, our job should be to bring it elsewhere. And if it's working elsewhere, our job should be to bring it to New York. Um, you know, the truth is, is that there, New York in no way, shape or form has poverty beaten. Uh, there are 1.8 million New Yorkers alone who are
1: living in poverty right now. And what are the other things that Robin working on? Like what are the, and what does the CEO of Foundation do? Yeah, so, uh, so the, the things that Robin
2: Hood is working on is, is anywhere you see poverty, uh, we'll attack it. And we'll go after it. I mean, and whether that be education and sports education, whether it be criminal justice reform, whether it be housing, whether it be health, uh, whether it be employment and job opportunities and job training, it really is about how do you find the most creative social entrepreneurs? How do you find the most effective organizations? How do you use data? And then how do you give them the capital that they need in order to grow, scale, and then eventually continue impacting the communities. So when I think about the job of, uh, of, of CEO of the foundation, you know, my job is to set the strategic direction for the organization. My job is to go out and make sure we have the resources that we need in order to properly impact the communities and the families that we'll serve. You know, our, my job is to make sure that we are bringing in top talent. To sit in the seats that uh that are going to be uh, that are that need to actually be there to affect the communities that we serve, and, and frankly, our job is to work not is, is to work with the community, and uh, and and to be very clear that you know I believe deeply that the people who are closest to the problems are often the times closest to the solution, and uh, and our job is if we're going to really be poverty fighters if we're really going to address the structural impediments that poverty have placed on so many families that have been intentionally put in poverty, then our job is to make sure that we're having conversations with members of the community and not about them. Are
1: there a set of, um, or like, how would you describe the Robinhood portfolio? Is it like, is it education? And I don't like, what are the, what are the areas? Yeah. So,
2: so it's, so it's, it's education. It's, it's health, it's housing, it's uh it's it's jobs and it's an employment uh and then it's also dealing with this level of advocacy and how advocacy then places kind of an umbrella around all that as well and and that's something that's actually relatively new for Robin Hood in fact Robin Hood now is in the process uh of bringing on for the first time in the history of the organization bringing on a chief public policy officer um because you know we believe deeply and i believe deeply that um that philanthropy alone cannot fix what bad policies have created um, and that philanthropy alone is never, unless you have good policies and unless you can actually, uh, you know, stress things that need to get done for communities and to, uh, you know, and to push back against things that have been done to communities, that philanthropy alone will never be able to fix that.
1: And can people volunteer at the Robin? Like, how does that work? If people want to get more involved, what does that look like?
2: Yeah. So, so, so there's a few different ways for people to get involved and volunteer. Um, and it depends on what stage of life that you're in. I mean, Robinhood actually has a whole series of mechanisms from everything from young children, from like Robinhood kids and Robinhood intern programs and, uh, and, and, and our teen council where if you are, you know, if you are five or 12 or 18, you can get involved and engage or 25, get involved, engage and learn about the work. Also for young professionals, we have something called PYT, which is philanthropic young things where it's really kind of gatherings for young people who are kind of involved in the work and we'll spend time, everything from going to visit community partners. Oftentimes community partners are looking for board members. And so it's being able to place you on a board that we think is kind of rightly aligned with with your thinking and where you are. Um, and so, and also it also means volunteering on different activities and things Robinhood has going on. So Robinhood.org is the site for, for people to learn more about Robinhood. But one of the things that, uh, that I've loved about Robinhood is no matter where you are in your stage, whether you are thinking about doing it full time or whether you're like, yo, I got an hour a month. That's all I got. There is a way to get involved and engage. The only thing that we ask is that you take this fight seriously. And, and, and for the fact that there are so many people who this is what they like, poverty and chronic entrenched poverty, uh, that this is where they are right now. That's something that should keep all of us up at night. And what do you say? There's
1: so many people who feel like the world is ending, that they like tried, they fought, they protested, they volunteered, they've called, and like yeah. it still hasn't changed. Yeah. What do you say to those people?
2: Well, for, first thing I will say to them is, 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 we don't have a choice right now. You know what I mean? Like, like we have one choice, and that's fight or die. That's it. Right. And I choose to fight. And I think everybody has to find their own individual space and own individual way to claim their voice and claim their power and go after it. And so whether that means that you get involved in the work of philanthropy, whether that means you get involved in your local church, whether that means you get involved in mentorship and at a a local school, it's fight or die. That's it. And I don't plan on dying today. You know, and so I think we have to take very seriously the fact that we need everybody on the field right now. And oftentimes and and people will share me the stats and listen to me. And as you know, man, like I I have more of a quantitative mind than a qualitative mind. Like I really like data and I really like stats. I also know that stats can become very numbing and stats can actually almost in many ways be used to keep people from doing anything because they can make people feel like the problem is so enormous that there's nothing for me to do. And so sometimes people ask, they're like, yo, you know, you know, you know the stats around this stuff. So how do you stay motivated? How do you stay engaged? How do you stay involved? And the truth is, I tell them, it's because I don't live in stats. I live in communities. I live in communities every day of people who wake up every morning and they go about their business. I live in communities of of, of mothers who are waking up early and taking their children to school and then going to work jobs that still are not paying them a living wage. You know, that, we're, that, you, that you were, we have people who are returning from prison and who are coming back and realizing that they will have asterisks next to their name for the rest of their lives. For something that, that many of them did years ago for something for they didn't even do. Like we have work to do. And so when I think about the fact that we work to do, I don't see how we have any choice. And I'm just not going to sit there and kind of allow it to happen. I think we all just need to pick up whatever, whatever tool we have next to us, whether that's your voice, whether that's a checkbook, whether that's, you know, a person, you know, or whether it's just the fact that I'm good with kids and go do something with it.
1: Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come.
3: Pod Save the People is brought to you by a factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not
1: atlp.com slash people guys it's been a rough year it's gonna get rougher and you deserve a little
4: treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst
1: talking to parents, especially newer parents about how has, uh, parenting like influenced the way you think about your responsibility to the world or, or like the work that you do or your role in the world. It's, it's, it's like, it's everything. And it's funny
2: because I know everyone told me, I, everyone told me, uh, before I kissed, yo, it's going to change everything. And I was like, yeah, no, 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 Like not for real. It really changed everything. Uh, and, um, so I, my, my, my daughter is six. And um uh, and my son is four. And um, you know, I say, my my daughter, um my daughter is my heart and my son is my soul. I mean, everything begins and ends with them. Every decision. I mean the very the very I remember when Robin Hood first contacted me and asked about this this first question. Um, the very first response that I had back was, you know, I don't and the reason why I initially was a no when I said, I don't know how this is gonna impact my children. Right? It's it's every every question starts with how does this impact them? And I kind of feel like, I think about my grandfather in this context, where my grandfather was actually the first one on my mother's side of family that was actually born in this country. He was born in South Carolina. Um, They all came from Jamaica. And when he was just a toddler, um, they left because the Ku Klux Klan ran him out. My my great-grandfather was a minister and, um, and I guess he was just a little too loud for the Klan. And they ran his family out. And my family, they all moved back to Jamaica. My great-grandfather never came back to this country. He wanted nothing to do with this country. Uh, my grandfather always had a passion for wanting to come back to the place of his birth and make it better. And he did. And he came back. He became the first black minister in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church. He um, had a small church in the South Bronx. My grandmother was a school teacher. And when my my grandfather, when my father died, and we were down in Baltimore and down in Maryland, um, my mother moved us up to come live with them Hmm. in the Bronx. That was my first introduction to New York, moving in with my grandparents at six years old. And while I didn't always get it as I was coming up, um, when I got older, the level of love and admiration and respect that I had for my grandfather and his commitment to the Bronx, his commitment to New York, his commitment to this country was something that really always sat with me. And it, it was, it sat with me because he didn't have to, right? His parents never came back here, but that was something that was important to him. And there took a certain level of, of love and a certain level of commitment and a certain level of courage that I always respected. So when you ask the question about how do my kids impact me, I think my kids, even though they don't fully understand the times that they are coming up in, they'll know soon enough. They'll know the world that we born them into. And I think it becomes a fundamental question that they will then ask of themselves. So what did you do about it? How did you try to shape it? What did you do to try to impact it? And I always want my kids to know that the world doesn't revolve around them, but the world doesn't exist without them either. And if that's something that I preach to my children, I feel like that's something that I should probably take seriously myself too. And so the work that I do, the folks who I will always focus on and knows that is the, the most vulnerable and the ones who frankly need and deserve a champion and the ones who historically have been intentionally left out of conversations. Um, I want my kids to know that as long as I had a chance, I was willing to do something about that. And, uh, and that this world that they live in, uh, that we're gonna do our best to help try to shape it.
1: I like that. Um, are, is Robin Hood doing anything around the Rikers, the closed Rikers stuff?
2: Yeah. So, so, so Robin Hood has actually been uh, not just in, involved in the, in the closed Rikers, but also thinking about the what happens next uh, work around Rikers. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting because even as we're having this bigger conversation about Rikers Island uh, and the closing of Rikers, the reality is the impact of Rikers is still being very much felt right now. I mean, as you know, I mean, there's, there's 10,000 people who tonight will spend the night at Rikers Island. Uh, 8,000 of them, by the way, have not been convicted of a crime. You know, they're there because they're awaiting trial. They're there because they can't afford bail. Uh, and so we're watching this poor tax that's essentially being levied upon all these people who are then staying in Rikers Island. And so Robin Hood has both in, in funding and also in both in, in funding organizations that are working within Robin Hood organizations like the Fortune Society, organizations like Single Stop, which are working to make sure that people's not just, not just rights are, are restored, but then also that the services and supports that they qualify for are actually then reintegrated back into their life as quickly as possible and to their families. Um, Robin Hood is working on those type of issues, but also thinking about the question of what happens next, right? And so what happens when you have people who will come back, but because they now have a record that they're not allowed to qualify for public housing, how do you reintegrate with a family if your family's living in public housing and you're not allowed in and you're not allowed in, what you're then doing is you're forcing your family to make a decision. They can either reintegrate with you, Or they can lose public housing. It's a completely unfair ask, right? And so, and and these are the type of things where you watch the reintegration process where there are levels of inequity that are still drawn out. And these are all issues that Robinhood is not just involved in terms of the funding like these other organizations that I mentioned, but then also how do we make sure that we can cut off this pipeline? There's one, there's a, you know, Robinhood is actually one of the things I'm really excited about that Robinhood is, is working on is actually using tech incubation. And how do we use technology as a way of better addressing systemic oppression and systemic boundaries and barriers? Um, you know, there's a, a few different really interesting, organi- uh, 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 platforms that have been built. One is called Propel, where we're actually using, uh, using a basic technology, uh, to be able to help people to, you know, better utilize their benefits. But then also in terms of criminal justice, there's another really cool platform called Good Call. Um, and really what good call is, it's now being piloted in the Bronx. But as you know, I mean, the first two hours of of arrest is really the witching hour and who you make your first phone call to can help determine whether, what your probability of actual conviction is going to be. So if your first phone call is either to a lawyer or to a family member who can then put you in touch with proper legal legal representation, your chances of conviction actually decreases by 75%, right? Um, but for a lot of people, when you're first arrested, your phone is taken,
1: your wallet is taken. I know what this good call doing Now I'm passing it. I'm ready. I'm like, get to the point. I got, up, got you. I'm ready for the lead. I'm ready for the G. <laughs> so
2: really, so really what it does is, so now it's actually being piled in the Bronx and it's working successfully that they're now figuring out ways of getting into to the city. It? It's a number that you will call. The first thing that it does, and it's a singular number that you will call and they're working with the Bronx defenders on it. It does two things. We love the Bronx defenders, by the way. They're, they're fantastic. Robin, Robinhood Community Partners, by the way. <laughs> um, two things that it does. One, it notifies your family to let so they know where you are because that is a major issue with arrest where people will just sit there yeah. and no one knows where they are. I love it. Notifies your family. I Man, I don't love that people are sitting. I'm loving good golf. <laughs> not, I understand <laughs> your point. And then the second thing that it does is it then links you up with a public defender to make sure that you have legal representation because when you are arrested and you have legal representation, by definition and by law, the questioning stops. They now have to work through your lawyer. So, your chances of talking, your chances of giving away information your questions your, your chances of, of having any further conversations particularly unnecessary conversations with that arresting officer or with that precinct ends because you now have legal representation hence significantly decreasing the probability that you will be convicted of that crime this has worked where 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 and literally the connection time now that we have that they have now down for good call mm-hmm. is down to 42 seconds between the time mm-hmm. that you call and the time that you're connected with legal representation and this
1: is one of your grantees
2: this is one of our that's exactly so this one of our
1: community parts and this is actually one of the community partner. So Robinhood helped to build. Tell us some other people you're funding that you think highlight the different commitment that Robinhood has made as a philanthropic partner in community.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a a few that I think are are really interesting. I think about the, you know, earlier this week, I was with the folks from Grameen America, And from, what? from Grameen America. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> from what? <laughs> and, uh, and, and really what they do is they, they fund entrepreneurs and they fund what we call non-traditional entrepreneurs. Because one of the biggest challenges with entrepreneurialism is, uh, is the money has oftentimes been very restricted and it's been in very restricted hands, i.e. generally white male hands, right? Um, when you look at the recipients of these different grants and loans that come in with Grameen America, uh, it is 96% Latina and it is 99% women. And they actually have lower default rates than any any bank has when it comes to the payback of money. These are opportunities and jobs that these women are creating for themselves that are, is changing the trajectory of the lives that they are living. By the way, close to 70% of the women who they are supporting are single moms. And, you know, single families, which is a whole nother big focus that Robin Hood is going to have for 2018, um, which is how exactly what exactly can we do to better support families that find themselves in single parent structures and be able to provide more supports? Because we know by both data and by anecdote um, how complicated it is for for single parents to have to navigate it. Single parents who, you know, many ways like my mom, who was working three different jobs. Um and didn't receive her first full time job with benefits and stable hours until I was 14 years old. Um, you know we think about organizations like uh, like C for Q, which stands for the Coalition for Queens, um, which is really exciting stuff where they're taking people who, by the way, are in are in uh lagging, dying, and flailing industries who have an average salary of around twenty thousand dollars and giving them technology skills coding skills, retraining them. The average the average salary for the people who do C for Q starts off at around twenty thousand. The average salary for them as they graduate from C for Q is around ninety thousand. These are people who are going from working jobs that essentially will be eliminated ten years from now to now having jobs at Google and Twitter. Um, basically just taking really fertile, active minds and just asking and just simply retraining them for the future workforce. So there's a lot of initiatives that I think really get us going. And the cool thing about, I think, you know, where Robin Hood is and where Robin is going is we want to take risks and take punts and we want to work on things that to, to the point that they no longer
1: have to be things anymore now last question is a question we ask everybody and by we i mean me it's i guess (laughs) i'm the Uh, last question is a question i ask everybody is there a piece of advice or talk about a piece of advice that you've gotten over uh the course of your career or life that stayed with you yeah i
2: i think the best piece of advice that i've gotten actually came from uh came from my grandparents and i was getting ready to deploy to afghanistan and um and they wrote me, they, they gave me a Bible. And it was one of those little Bibles that kind of like that fits, like the New Testament Bibles. Uh, that fits inside your, uh, like a breast pocket. And um, and they wrote inside the Bible, um, have faith, not fear. And I used to have that Bible in my flak vest before we went on every mission. Hmm. Every time I left the wire, I'd have that Bible right over my heart in my flag vest. And I would repeat those words as we were heading out of the wire, going out into into, into combat. Like, have faith, not fear, have faith, not fear, have faith, not fear. I've carried that with me even now to this day. When I think about it's very easy to be scared in the current climate that we're in, right? It's very easy to be intimidated by fear. It's very easy to be consumed by it. Um, I just choose to have faith. I choose to have faith that, that if we do what we have to do, we'll be in a better place. Um, that there's nothing we're seeing here that is new. There's nothing we're seeing here that is, that is, that is scarier than what other people saw before us. Um, and they got through it with faith. And so the best piece of advice I've ever gotten um, and, the, and the piece of advice that I hold on to me every single day is have faith, not fear. And where can people go to follow you? They can follow me at I am Westmore. Uh, and uh, that's on Facebook, that's on Instagram, that's and on it's Twitter. West like W E S. Yes, I am Westmore, which is I A
1: M W E S M O O R E. Cool. Well, we appreciate you. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back.
2: My man, and listen, I appreciate you. I appreciate everything you're doing all around. Mm. Thank you. Awesome.
1: Thank you. Don't go anywhere. More podcast the people's coming.
4: Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates
1: committee. And now my conversation with Laura Powers-Weidman, uh, who leads Code 2040. So, Laura, thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. Boom. So we first met because you used to be in the Obama administration and you worked on some of the tech stuff there. Can you talk about what what was it like to be in the White House? What did you do when you were in the White House?
0: Yeah. So I was in the Obama administration for the last uh, six months uh, of the administration. And I was working with um, U.S. Chief Technology Officer Megan Smith um, and her team. And we were really focused on... How we could take the best practices around diversity and inclusion in tech and in the corporate sector and start to create some concrete strategies uh, across learnings from different companies and actually feed them back out into the market um, so that companies could move the needle on actually including more of our communities in the industry.
1: Now, was working in the administration what you thought it would be like?
0: Oh, <laughs> um, you know, I think the thing that was most surprising to me about joining the administration is I had come from working on diversity inclusion issues in Silicon Valley for five years. And I was really used to having to justify why it was important that we actually think about these sorts of issues. And I walked into uh, the halls of the White House, and it was just a given that our economic systems and institutions should be inclusive of and welcoming of all Americans. And that sort of initial hurdle of justifying the work was just totally gone. And I was... (sighs) constantly surprised and impressed by the breadth of people working on totally disparate issues who would reach out and say, can I get your lens on how we can make this more inclusive? And it was everything from artificial intelligence policy to um, kind of redoing uh, you know, systems around hiring to entrepreneurship and access to capital. Um, There was just a real appetite for actually using that lens and thinking in that way um, that it really actually restored faith and hope for me since I was so used to being in a place where that needed to be justified.
1: That makes a lot of sense. You know, I know um, I know some members of that team that you were on, and, and people seem really committed to to this work. I know them mostly because of the police the police work that that the White House was mm-hmm. doing at the very end. Now, you lead Code Twenty Forty. What is what's like your elevator pitch for what Code Twenty Forty is?
0: So, Code Twenty Forty is a nonprofit organization, and essentially, we're working to leverage. Opportunities in the tech sector to close the racial wealth gap for Black and Latinx communities in America.
1: And why is it called 20? What's special about 2040? What's the 2040? I don't think I've ever asked you that before.
0: Yeah. So, so 2040 is sort of our call to action. It's actually the start of the decade when people of color will be the majority in the US.
3: Hmm. Black
0: and Latinx communities, in particular, will be over 40% of the population. And at Code 2040, we use that as a deadline. We want to see proportional representation for Black and Latinx communities across the innovation economy, whether that's as software engineers, as uh, leaders of companies, founders, investors. um, And we want to see that proportional representation by the year 2040, the start of that decade.
1: And you talk about the racial wealth gap, but for, for people who don't know what that is, like how would you explain the racial wealth gap?
0: Essentially, if you look at the data and you sort of splice the data of who has access to uh, wealth in the U.S., you see dramatic differences by race. Um, the latest numbers put the um, median wealth of a white family at around $130,000 and the median wealth of a Black family or a Latinx family at around uh, ten dollars to $15,000. And so when you think about what that means in terms of all sorts of implications, um, it actually starts to shed light on some of the challenges that communities are having around economic mobility because there's actually structural things preventing them from accumulating wealth. And we actually, we have a thought experiment that we do at Code2040 which is to imagine a future, say in the year 2040, where there was no racial wealth gap, where actually communities had access to the same resources, irrespective of race. And to think about what are the problems that we could solve if everyone had the tools and resources to build and solve for their own community, as opposed to seeing this really uh, unequal and inequitable distribution of wealth that we see today.
1: What are the strategies or tactics that Co 2040 employs to, to get us to a point where there's equity with regard to yeah. access and tech?
0: So there are three main strategies that we employ. One is looking at a really important leverage point, which is the transition from education to employment. So a lot of people don't know because the narrative that has been pushed by the tech industry has been, well, this is a pipeline problem. The talent isn't out there. There's no way that we could um, possibly be more diverse without first solving all sorts of you know public education system issues. And while this is not to diminish the fact that there's a lot of really important investment in K-12 and in exposure to tech, if you look at the data right now, 20% of computer science grads each year are Black or Latinx. And the numbers at these top tech companies tend to hover around 2%, 3% when it comes to their technical teams. And that's only looking at the technical side. Um, Over half of employees at a lot of these companies are non-technical. So the first important thing that Code2040 focuses on is navigating that transition from education to employment by creating pathways into the industry through our Code 2040 Fellows Program, um, which is a summer internship program. Um, But the second piece of that ties in, which is the fact that there's actually systems and policies and practices that companies use without recognizing it that create barriers to access to these opportunities for folks from underrepresented backgrounds, Black and Latinx folks, um, people of color, generally white women. um, There's ways that talent is evaluated. There's ways that culture is propagated that actually um, can be exclusionary for folks from underrepresented backgrounds. And so the second thing Code 2040 does is works with companies to identify those policies and practices and to change and evolve them to become more inclusive so that companies can actually make good on the types of commitments that they put out there around diversity and inclusion. And then the third piece is around community building and activation. There's only so much that we as an organization are ever going to be able to do. The real power lies in the folks that are in our community to open up doors for one another and to share knowledge and coaching. And so we have a community of about 5,000 today. We're building that to 40,000 folks over the next three years who will be active across industry Um, not just succeeding themselves, but also lifting up others as they do.
1: Hey, Laura, how can people get involved? How can people learn more about Code 2040? What's next?
0: So uh, you can always find us at our website, code2040.org, or on Twitter at Code 2040. We have lots of volunteer opportunities um, that we share through those channels. And then I think the main thing is recognizing that um, tech is not just an industry these days. It's actually the tools that we use to communicate, um, to pay one another, uh, to organize. And it's important that we recognize that these tools can not just support and enable um, progress, but also uh, can support and enable the type of bigoted behavior that we've seen recently and that we hold companies accountable to making sure that they're actually creating safe spaces and supporting the values that they um, often purport to support through their products. So that kind of public outcry that we've seen that put pressure on companies to kick some of these white supremacist groups off their platforms in the last few days is really valuable.
1: Cool. Thanks so much, Laura, for joining us today on Pod of the People, and we consider you a friend of the pod
0: thanks thanks
1: for having me peace well thanks so much for joining us today on positive with the people welcome to 2018 and I will see you next week make sure you rate us wherever you get your podcast and uh yeah see you next week wow.